This is the Punk Show Podcast. All right, this is really exciting. Um, yes, I've been bugging you for years about coming on this show, and we've never actually made it happen until right this very moment. I've Labor got Labor Day. Labor How Day. Apropos. <laughs> That's right. For a man in the band called the Skid Marks. <laughs> Yeah, they're perfect, right? Power to the people. That voice you hear there, that is Scott Henderson, uh, a legend of of local lore here in Victoria, a, a guy that has been... You've had your fingers and your hands in, in a lot of stuff and a lot of classic albums and bands that have come out of this town, and you continue to do so. I won't go away. No, no, you won't. <laughs> Um, now, for the uninitiated, uh, they will maybe know you currently. Um, if they ever go to Logan's and see any bands there, you're the guy... Um, Twisting the knobs and making the sound sound as good as it does there. Yes, apparently I'm going to get time off for good behavior, but I'm not sure. But I've been I've been there 18 years, sort of reversed into this world of live sound. Something I swore I would never do. Is that right? Yeah. I swore I would never do live. Live sound is not a very rewarding job sometimes because if everything is perfect, because you've changed all the laws of physics. Yeah. Everybody goes, yeah, so. But if there's any, if the TPA blows up and you've held it all together with binding wire, right? And there's a crackle in the guy. Hey, you know there's a crackle in the speakers. Like you know, you can go away anytime, pal. <laughs> you know. So people, I actually a friend of mine, uh, Brains, who's in the Narnars, yes, right, covered for me while I had a little stint in hospital recently, and he mm-hmm. came up to me the other day and says, "God, this is the worst job in the world." Yeah, <laughs> I can't. Don't know how you do it. So how do you do? It? How have you continued to 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 handle that for 18 years? Whenever I go to Logan's, I don't go there. I don't go there nearly enough. But uh, you, you either seem very content and happy, or you look like you're about to pull your head off. Well, yeah, that's, well, it, it's usually somewhere between those two poles. But uh, the the thing for me that I always have to well, I remind myself of about three things in, during difficult times. There, first of all, the band is paying my wage. Right. Not the bar. Mm. The band is paying. So I'm working for them. Second of all. I'm a musician first and foremost. Mm-hmm. I've met that sound man. I've fired him twice. <laughs> We've actually fired sound men. Like, just go away. Don't turn the PA on. <laughs> <laughs> so you try not to be that sound man. You try to be understanding. You take lots of deep breaths when guys show up with, you know, a pedal board with 20 pedals on it. It doesn't work. And then they stare at it. And they go, staring at it isn't going to make it work. <laughs> you know? And there's a lot of people who really should know better, who've been in this business forever. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what, what do you mean you can't, you don't know where to plug in your amp? Right. So you have to, there's a lot of sighing. Yes. And deep breathing. <laughs> right. A lot of uh, zen, trying to stay zen. Exactly. Yeah. You just, you know, it's, you're not, you're not going to get anywhere being a grumpy sound man. Right. So. Okay. So let's, uh, let's back up here for a minute. Cause I want to start sort of from the beginning. We don't need to go into every detail of. Of your upbringing or anything, but are you where are you from originally? I'm from Victoria. Always, I was born in St. Joseph's Hospital. Okay, and damn near died in Victoria General Hospital, which ironically was the same building. Right. Okay. Because it was the uh, it turned from St. Joseph's. I they kicked all the that. nuns out and they turned it into a secular hospital. I suppose. Um, what high school did you go to? I went to Claremont. You went to Claremont. Okay. I went to Claremont and graduate was supposed to graduate in '76. Ended up graduating in '77. Because when in 76, I got shot by a fellow who had a Vietnamese assault rifle. Oh, don't call it an assault rifle. It's an AR-15. You hunt deer with it. <laughs> no, you don't. It's designed to kill people. I'm glad you brought that up because I wasn't <laughs> sure if that was a sensitive topic. But I have read, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of research here. I've read that you got shot. Yes. How old were you when that happened? I was 17. My God, man. And you got shot, like, in the chest. Well, I got shot in the back and it came out through the chest. Oh, my God. And uh, luckily, and I use that word very advisedly, um, it severed the vessel bringing the blood from my brain had it have done the one to my brain i wouldn't be here but 
Wow. Luckily, that did that, and the, the blood in my body kept going into the brain, keeping me alive, and it just kept scooching out. That's and then crazy. they got me into, this was at Prospect Lake, which is a long ways from anywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, they got me into the hospital and broke the record for blood used by a surviving patient, and they saved me. Because I'm notoriously difficult to kill. <laughs> my whole family is very long-lived and sturdy, so... Now, and I also read that you were sort of on the path to maybe go, going into the military well, at that time. Well, my whole family was in the Air Force. Okay. Uh, my stepfather fought in, or flew during the Commonwealth Air, Air Training Scheme. My uncle was a turret gunner in Bristol Beaufort's in the Mediterranean. The whole family was in the war. And I, I was in airplanes. I, I'm still really a big military history nut. Mm-hmm. And so it just seemed logical to go into the uh, military, fly voodoo jets. You'll never have to fire a gun at anybody in anger. Right. And you get a fabulous pension, which is what my cousin did, and he's living high on the hog right now. Okay. But I discovered rather quickly that uh, the Canadian military has very little use for people that only have one lung. Yeah. So you <laughs> lost a lung in that? In I lost that. most of one, my right lung wow. and 10 ribs. And they had to do an operation on me called a thoracoplasty, which was done for TB victims. And they basically take all your ribs out and collapse your chest. So there's no space in there to get infected, which is, God, it's a really simple and effective solution, but it does kind of make you look funny when you wear skin-tight clothing. Right. You, know? you lost 10 ribs? 10 ribs. That's How many do you even have to begin with? You know, I think it's 13, but I can't remember. I just, I don't know. Well, we're very glad that you yeah, are still here. so am I. So would that, would, is it safe to say then, obviously, that mean that, put, you know, sadly, I guess, but maybe not in retrospect, but that put an end to the military career yeah. options. Yeah. The sensible option disappeared. Right. And, after, and I'd always been a music nut, but I was like, you know, you'll never make a living in music, mm-hmm. son. Yeah, yeah. And when I was 45, I'm like, what are you going to do with your life? Says my mom. I said, I think I'm kind of doing it, mom. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, but that's it. And, and so I just I pursued my musical interests. I bought a record store. Yeah. Richard's Records. Richard's Records. Bought into a record. I bought half of a record store. Okay. Was that sort of your first foray into the music industry, so to speak? Uh, yeah, I guess it would have been my first foray into the music industry. And my, I had a wonderful partner, Ian Cochran, who mm-hmm. is, I, I just found out, is retired. If he's out there listening, I say hi. Awesome. And uh, he put up the, the fact that I knew less than nothing about running a business. Right. So he did most of the work. <laughs> now, where was Richard's Records it was for those? Thirteen Eighteen Government Street. Okay, there's a hat store there now. Right. Is Roberta's hat still there? It was there forever. Oh, that. Oh, that's yeah. where it was. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. And it was the funky little independent record store. If you wanted the new Joy Division single, well, we were going to get it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was when Re- Victoria had Miller's. Yeah. Kelly's. Yeah. A and B Sound. Yeah. Mesro's. Mesro's. Richard's Sweet Thunder and Symphonia. So you could go for a little stroll from the top of Yates Street down to Market Square and hit seven record stores. Yeah, those were the days. Which was really great, yeah. yeah. Now, you also worked at A&B Sound, I thought I, I heard that. I worked at A&B Sound for a little while, uh, right after I, I basically sold my half of Richard's to Ian because we weren't making enough money to support two full salaries. Okay. So then I went to A&B Sound, and uh, I wasn't really popular at A&B Sound. I didn't like cocaine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody else did there did. Well, yeah. I don't want to go as far as to say that, <laughs> yeah. but... When I played White Lines by Grandmaster Mel Mel, it did not get a positive reception. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. I played it in the... I used to work in the warehouse. I was yeah. too dangerous to have on the floor because I might sell something. Yeah. And, I know, had a buddy that worked in the warehouse at AMB Sound, but it would have been later than that. This is like probably 88. Well, the warehouse in those days was absolutely ginormous. Yeah. Like, it was a really big, big room full of records. And of course, I was like a kid in a candy store because, mm-hmm. you know, I could buy any of these records at cost. And plus, one of the weird things about Richard's Records was we s- distributed all the Wyndham Hill records in Canada west of, I think it was Winnipeg. Okay. 
I don't and know what Wyndham Hill is. George Winston's Autumn and Winter. These records went zillion times platinum. Oh, okay. The early New Age records. Right, okay. And so I would buy these things from Wyndham Hill themselves, mm-hmm. when they were still an independent label, and I would one-stop them to everybody in town and make a pretty decent profit on it, and I'd just spend it all on records, of course. <laughs> so I ended up acquiring quite a few records during that era. Nice. But, uh, yeah, so... Okay. Yeah. So then at this point, um, so we're now in the early the early 80s. The early 80s. Worked at A&B for a while, and that ended. And then I went to work for Lyle's Place. Okay. And I worked at Lyle's Place until 91. And when my eldest daughter, Anna, was born, I just stopped working. Mm-hmm. And moved. we moved out to Colwood. And I built a studio in the basement, and then I sort of busied myself creating a professional studio. It was the right. first studio I had that was actually halfway is professional. Because and is that where you are currently? No. No. Uh, that was my old, that was the old, can I say the word shit You can't, here? we're uncensored here. The sea of shit. Yeah. Which, you know, if one thing's for sure, nobody forgot that name. <laughs> That's true, yeah. You know, it's like, ocean sound. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, come on, give me a break. West Coast Grill. <laughs> You're going to call your, you know, come on. <laughs> so sea of shit. The new one is not called that because there's no shit in it. So it's, we put hardwood floors down. And I thought, well, this is ridiculous luxury. So it became the lap of luxury. Oh, nice. Okay. So now it's LOL instead of SOS. Right. Yeah. That's great. SOS is what the, the squeamish people, you know, my grandmother's paying for this record. Can we just put SOS? Yeah. Okay, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> but you, okay, so let's go, let's, where was Sea of Shit? That was. Sea of Shit was in Colwood. In Colwood, It okay. was 93 to 05. Okay. I sure hope I don't get quoted on this. But no, that's all right. I think those are the dates. Dates are. And I dates. bought three wonderful Tascam DA88 uh, uh, high eight digital multi track recorders, which were the biggest pain in the ass I've ever run into in my life. Okay. Tascam didn't know what they did. Yeah. Tascam told me, well, only use this type of tape, which I did for three months. Then I told them I was using this type of thing. And they went, oh. You're not supposed to use that type of tape, but you guys told me to use it. Oh, well, we found it. It doesn't work. So there's a whole archive of stuff on digital tape that probably won't play. Oh, is that right? Yes, yeah. which is sad, but, you know. Okay, I, 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 so we're, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves yes. here, so I want to I just rewind a little bit. How did you, um, how, how did you, what, what came first? Was it No Means No or The Day Glows? And I know, I know that you've worked with so many other bands, too. We'll, get to, well, we'll talk about that a little bit, but, but I mean, you know, these are sort of the... The, uh, well, the Stones the and the Beatles of, of... The weird of, part is, yeah. I, I was involved in a few bands very, very casually as a performer, but they were all kind of jazz fusion bands, mm-hmm. kind of like Emerson, Lake and Palmer meets Passport or whatever. Okay. And because I really, I really loved that music as a kid. I, was, I still have a soft spot for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And so my musical, I wasn't really known as a player. I was really, I had terrible stage fright. I didn't play a gig until I was 27. Oh, wow. And, uh, but through the record store, I got to meet all the local people that were making music. Right. Like, that's where I met Tom Holliston. He came into the store one day. And um, so I got exposed to all the local characters in the local music scene. And, and a lot of it I didn't do much for me, but a lot of punk rock didn't do much for me until... God, what was this? Believe it or not, it was Cheat by The Clash. Okay. I went, hey, I like this. And the reason I liked it, because there's a huge flange in the middle of it. Right. Which I was like, oh, that's cosmic. It's like Ichigo Park. And that's the first punk song that I actually kind of went, hey, this isn't bad. Okay, interesting. But uh, I started meeting these people, and there was a, a music store up in Shelburne Cedar Hill Mall. Okay. Called Castle Music, run by Rob and Nancy Castle, a wonderful couple who had a little tiny music store. 
And a friend of mine who play, I played in the fusi- fusion band with, mm-hmm. Casey Peckett, worked there. And um, he kept telling me about these two brothers he knew that had a four-track Tascam studio. And back then, the four-track Tascam reel-to-reel was the holy grail of all home studios. It was pretty much professional quality. It wasn't ridiculously expensive. Mm-hmm. It was bulletproof reliable. And a lot of people had them. And so uh, one fine day, this crazy-looking guy walks in while I was... Because I used to hang out at this music store all the time. I must have driven them nuts. <laughs> I bought a synthesizer from them, and I figured, oh, I can, now I can hang out here. I could just hang out here all the time. And uh, so this guy comes in with a tape of this thing he had done, and Casey goes, oh, this is my friend John. He's Him and his brother live just over around the corner, and they got this four-track in their basement. And they played me... I remember the song. He played me You're So Blind, which is a very obscure No Means No song, and it sounds like the tubes or something. Okay. And it was one of John's fantastic hyper-pop songs with string synthesizers raging away, and it was quite, you know, I was like, wow, this is great. Who is this? Well, this is me. You and who? Well, me and my brother do this. And he played me a bunch of the stuff that would be considered pre-wormies. Um, right. No means no. Wow. Which I have a lot of this on the masters in my studio mm-hmm. archives. And I was just like, this is so great. These guys just make up their own music at home, which is what I'd always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I met those guys. Okay. And then they, when I was running the record store, they came up with this Wormies single. And so, can we sell our single? Sure, let's make it, put it right out in front. You know, local band. And Ray Luxemburg made a single. Uh, Easy Money made a single. Yeah. And the second Easy Money single, I actually helped basically put it out because I had bought the store and it was on Richard's Records. Right, right. So we were financing it. And I said, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm in for that. So I, that new Easy Money record that's just come out. I was going to say, as an aside, yeah. Jason Flower now yeah. has got uh, a yeah. bunch of the copies of that new sort of compilation they put yeah. together. And in a small way, I contributed to that. Right. But um, got me a free copy of it. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I had to pay for mine. Yeah. Well, there you go. So, yeah. So I started meeting all these bands, and, and I met the Dayglows. And the Dayglows put out their notorious first album, mm-hmm. which had a, well, let's just call it a tasteless cover. Yes. And uh, the Every Woman's <laughs> Bookstore, which was around the corner, which was the local, whatever you want to call it, feminist bookstore. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's call a spade a spade here. Mm-hmm. They came to protest the, protest the album cover. Okay. And I said, well, you know, I'm not going to disagree with you. I think it's an appalling taste. Well, you have to s- remove the record from your shelves. And I go, well, that's kind of censorship. Yeah. And they were like, we don't care. And I said, well, okay, you do realize I'm the sole distributor of Olivia Records in anywhere near here. And Olivia Records was a well-known lesbian record label okay. out of the States. And we, we carried the whole line. We carried everything Olivia did because people like the Every Woman Books people wanted yeah. it and they said well they're not offensive and i said well a lot of people think homosexuality is horribly offensive sure so if i take the Dayglows record down i gotta take all these olivia records down too but you can't do that <laughs> well you're right you know no yeah. i can't do that so they they so i made a thing to go over the cover with it was a piece of cardboard and just there were slots so you could read the name of the record and that was all <laughs> i said really? I'll, I'll meet you halfway and of course this wasn't good enough so yeah. then i Told them they had to leave. And they had and no idea what was going on. They later down the claimed fight. to have trashed my record store, which was a lie, but right. that's really funny. Wow. I think really? it made it into Chris Walter's book. Okay. Which is a, f- a fantasy of epic yeah. proportions, that book. <laughs> I can safely say that just about every time I'm mentioned in that book, it yeah. is incorrect. You know, okay, so I actually had Chris Walter on the phone for an interview. <laughs> He's just, a good guy. Just I like a couple him. weeks ago. It was a great interview. He was a good guy. I have not read the Day Glow's book, but I've heard 
um, that there are inaccuracies from other people as well, not just about you, but about the band themselves. You know, and, you, you got to step back with a guy like him and say, he could be a dead junkie, mm-hmm. but instead he quit and he became a writer. Right. Which is great. I call him a punk mythologist. Okay. Because there's the mythology in the Day Glow book is quite, it's like, I seem to remember them sleeping on the floor being starving all the time, but this sure looks glamorous mm-hmm. in this right. book. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, he's made it into a real sort of a myth, yeah. which is fine, I suppose. People want myths people well it makes for good reading i guess right it worked for sun raw yeah (laughs) yeah right so okay uh, anyway so i met the day glows and i I bought at about this time i bought a four track half inch tape machine which weighed about four thousand pounds and it was from about 1972 and it came with a bunch of half inch reels of tape with uh i believe it was the brothers forbes okay from the forge from god knows when these and eight half inch tape was expensive then it is now but it was a big solid robust machine you couldn't distort the electronics and so a friend of mine malcolm du jones and i bought this thing together and i recorded the day glows in the basement basement of metropole which was a room maybe the size of this made entirely out of concrete wow where you had a 300 watt guitar amp playing at about eight so to say that these sessions were cacophonous yeah 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 <laughs> it was just amazing but that's how i started i recorded a queen ida concert here okay for eugene evans i believe it was and um I just started recording stuff because Key Studios, who are the only real pro rock and roll studio in town, were, if I remember correctly, $65 an hour, which in 1975 money is a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And um, I realized I could never afford to pay that to do what I wanted to do. And I had it set in my mind I was going to make music by nook or by crook, even if I had to play all the instruments myself. Mm -hmm. So I figured, I guess I better start building the studio. And so that was the first studio that became Hole in the Wall. Right. Where we recorded the legendary Neo's EP, which right. was the first thing I ever recorded that actually was for sale to the public. Okay. So we say September 82, that's when I, that's my anniversary. Of when you really started. when I started recording bands. Okay. You have to, you have to start somewhere. So that's and Hole in the Wall, that was in James Bay, yeah? That was where Save on Foods is now. Okay. What we used to call the banana belt, because the, the road... Blanchard splits and there's a oh. strip in the middle. So the Saanich Center there or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, um, there were all these old houses that Saanich owned that were mm-hmm. slated for demolition someday, but they were going to rent them out. Mm-hmm. And so I had a basement studio with a real hole in the wall. Yeah. And you could step through the hole in the wall, which was handy. <laughs> and yeah, it flooded. And uh, this ancient machine, which was owned previously by Valdi. Oh, wow. And I bumped into Valdi recently at l and he's a really nice guy. Yeah. And I said, you know, I bought your old four-track. He goes, really? What did you do with the tapes? And I said, well, we erased them and recorded punk rock over them. He goes, oh, all my early demos were on those no tapes. No way. <laughs> yeah. Really? Now, to be fair, yeah. I don't remember anything that sounded like Valdi demos. Yeah. We did actually listen to a lot of these tapes. There's a lot of accordions. Okay. And, you know, when there's accordions on a tape, you erase it as quickly as possible. <laughs> You don't get that print through. <laughs> you really have it out for accordion. Actually, I don't. I played with David V. Smith for 12 years, so I understand the accordion. But it's it's a difficult instrument. Fair enough. Um, well, okay, so the Neos, you recorded... Uh... I recorded the Neos. I recorded a band called Suburban Menace, okay. which morphed into Red Tide. Red right. Tide became quite a seminal band in town. Yes. And then I started recording everybody. I mean... Um, the four-track lasted for, when did I buy? I bought an eight-track Tascam 388, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. Porta Studio. Portable if you have a gorilla with you to carry it. Because <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot bigger than that thing, and it weighs about 200 pounds. Oh, wow. But it was an eight-track, all self-contained board and um, tape machine. 
quarter inch, seven and a half inches per second, which isn't great for eight track, but it had DBX and it was just about professional and it was easy and it worked and it worked. It's still somewhere. I think I still have it. Okay. But it sat in a shed in the rain for a year once. Oh dear. Well, I sold it to somebody and then they put it in a shed that didn't have a roof and then I got it back and it was like, hmm, this doesn't work as well as it did when I sold it to you. (laughs) (laughs) But I keep it for trying to archive tapes, although that's very difficult. So... So that was the, the that was the three eighty eight era. All right. So at first, because I was a lunatic and mm-hmm. I was keen, I would take this thing to where the band rehearsed. Oh. So I did the first mission of Christ that way. Okay. And uh, Trevor and Nev from the Dayglow showed up to help, and they helped by drinking all the beer that I got for payment. Yeah. And then it, I kept reading articles about you know Trevor and Nev produced this first <laughs> this first uh, mission of Christ record, which is. That's always how it goes, you know. <laughs> and uh, I did the first uh, Section 46 yeah. uh, tape that way. I'd be in the room with the band. So it's impossible to monitor anything. Right. I, you, there are, the headphones aren't made that can keep that noise out. Fair enough. So you'd sort of guess and by golly, and you'd be like, okay, well, the view meter isn't all the way in the red. I guess I'm getting good signal. Mm-hmm. And this proved to be an imperfect arrangement. So finally I said, i got to build a proper studio. So I built a studio. Where did I build my first studio? With the 388. Good grief. Was it the... uh... It was in the dollhouse. God, I'm having a mental... Right, the dollhouse. I'm having a senior moment, folks. That's all right. The dollhouse was at uh, Shelburne Street, just north of um, Sears. Okay. And uh, in that basement, and of course, it was a basement, and yes, of course, it flooded. Mm -hmm. In fact, all the sewage from Mount Doug down to my house came into my studio one night when I was in Amsterdam. Oh, no. And no means no, we're recording the first Hansen's record in my basement, and... Suddenly this horrible gurgling of sound came and this unspeakable stuff came in and filled my basement. So don't put a basement in a studio. That's my rule. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unless good you advice. like water. Um, so Dollhouse was where I really hit my stride. Yeah. And uh, did, I can't think of how many sessions there, hundreds probably. Yeah. So you did the first Hanson's record, Gross Misconduct. Yeah. That was done on rented gear. We didn't do that on the 388. Okay. The 388 wasn't good enough. Um, but I did all the early Pigment Vehicle, all the early Mission of Christ. Mm-hmm. Shut down Section 46. Uh, and that studio started in about 86, mm-hmm. was it? Boy, these these numbers are subject to change without That's notice. okay. No one's going to no uh, no call you I did that until 93, on. and then yeah. my then-wife and I started having children, and she bought her mom's house off of her in Caldwell, which was much bigger and was not owned by the municipality of Saanich and Slater for demolition. So we moved into that, built a proper studio, room within a room, non-parallel walls, water, airtight door. We had some very loud bands, and we had no means to with two drummers record there once. Oh, wow. And I didn't get a noise complaint, and this was in the heart of suburban call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I must have done something right. Obviously. Because the worst thing you can have is angry neighbors. Yeah. If you're going to make unweird, you know, weird music, Mm -hmm. don't share it with your neighbors. Yeah. I lived in a trailer park a little while after this, and I did some very weird music at 3 in the morning and forgot that my speakers were on because I had the headphones on. And yeah. I found out the trick is just tell everybody you're working on a soundtrack right. for a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought it was something really weird. It was weird. Yeah, I was just like, don't tell them it's art for art, sir, because they'll look at you different. So you never went to school for like sound engineering or anything? Or did, I took or a did course you? at the good old key recording. Okay. Legendary key recording. They did a recording studio course. And it was taught by a guy named Michael Donaghy, who, amongst other things on his resume, worked on Night at the Opera. Okay. But he also did several million terrible disco singles in Britain, which is not a job, in my opinion. That's a sentence. <laughs> he, he, just, I, he did 
hundreds of these terrible things. Yeah. But he was a very good engineer, and he was a good teacher. But basically all I learned how to do was edit tape, which is something nobody does anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think I've only done it three times in my life since. Right. And I got to, you know, like it was really funny because that was right about when the first Joy Division record came out. Right. And I was f obsessed with the producer, Martin Hannett. Okay. Who made these crazy delay on things mm. and these outrageous sounds. And with the course, of course, they get in some poor band and they, you guys are the guinea pigs. We're going to let these students work on you. Okay. We'll give you free studio time. So I had some sort of country rock band in. And I'm trying to make them sound like Martin Hanna would produce them. Right, I and, see. And Donna Guinea is sitting there going, no, 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 that's not how you do it. I say, listen, this is how I do it. Yeah. Because I wanted to sound, well, no, nobody will ever like this kind of sound. And I went, I don't know, you should hear this guy out of England. And, of course, Martin Hanna is a legend. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but then it was like, you're putting too much delay on the toms. No, no, I want it on the toms. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, so that's the, that's the extent of my formal training in okay. sound. Watching John Wright record No Means No was probably the how I learned how to do drums. Right. Because the man knows a thing. Well, John knows a thing or two about recording. Mm -hmm. But like me, he basically learned on the way. Yeah. And if you listen to the early No Means No records, you kind of hear them going through various stages of learning curves. Mm -hmm. For instance, if you listen to uh, Small Parts, mm -hmm. it's a really different sounding record than Wrong. Sure it is, yeah. And I've been very fortunate that I was one of the few people that I could go to No Means No and go, you know what, this doesn't sound that good. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what? What do you mean? I said, like, well, it sounds like, sounds like, the, sounds like everything's an overdub. Mm -hmm. and I said, why don't you make it sound like a band playing in a room? And then they did Wrong. Right, right. And of course, Wrong is, you know, if, you get, if you're going to own one No Means No record, that's the one to own, I would say. It's their Sgt. Pepper. And yeah, and it really coalesced, their sound coalesced. Mm -hmm. That record sounds... If you close your eyes and turn it on, it's the band is in front of you playing. Mm -hmm. Small parts, if you close your eyes and turn it on, suddenly there's a rack tom right in front of you with a different reverb on than the mm -hmm. floor tom. Yeah. I always found that really disorienting. But yeah. This was John Discovery. Wow, you mean I could put a different reverb on the floor? Like, right. we all go through this. When yeah. gated reverb came along, my goodness, everything had gated reverb on it. Everything. Yeah. And I just saw a thing on Facebook. like This ancient trick in recording studios makes stuff sound like it's not an ancient trick. It's gated reverb. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so that that's it for the, and everything yeah. else has just been, I learned it as I go. Just as you go. I made lots of dumb mistakes. Sure, yeah. I've uh, wrestled with the digital demons. Mm -hmm. I found out that when a piece of digital equipment doesn't work, you turn it off and then turn it back on again. Yeah. And nine times out of ten, it fixes whatever was wrong with it. <laughs> yeah, reboot. God, if, only, if only the analog world was like that. Yeah, wouldn't that be if nice? If only my car was like that. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> just turn it off. Reboot. Um, so let's talk about the... Bands that you've been involved in or with, I should say, like I mean, we're, you're involved with them this way, but I mean, uh, musically, yeah, I, actually I didn't playing play with. Play in bands yeah. until uh, I was 27, and the first band I was in was a band called Beige Froth. Now, Beige Froth was the perfect band for me because I could play, but I was terrified to play live. Okay. The rest of my bandmates couldn't play a lick. But they they couldn't wait to get on stage and make fools out of themselves. Right. So these are all my old buddies, uh, the Robinson brothers, Steve and Mike, and our singer Greco, who's a legend in this town for his insanity, and Paul Bouget on drums. And we played, we were the opening band at a Fernwood 10-band gig. Oh, wow. Where nine of the bands were what we like to call fuck bands. Right. So you had the Rockin' Chinaman, you had the Howling Breakdancing Grapefruit Society, you had He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, which was just the Dayglows with me on bass, playing things like Hocus Pocus by Focus. Oh, wow, yeah. And uh, it was a real, boy, what a gig that was. So I, to say that I started at the very bottom in live performance, yeah. when you're the opening band for a 10-man bill, yeah. you know. Okay. So, 
And Beige Froth kind of hit along. And then I bumped into Chris Buck and Ken Kempster at, of all things, an Ornette Coleman concert at the Newcomb. Okay. Where Ornette brought his band Primetime, who I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. And they played at the Newcomb, and we were like, we got, I got to go to this. Because most people in jazz who like Ornette Coleman don't like Primetime. Primetime was his electric sort of, okay. quote-unquote, funk band. Right. So it was great, because we all knew each other just sort of from the scene. And he was, he was like, oh, you're here too. Oh, neat. And, and Chris was like, we should jam. And the thing is, I don't jam. I don't like jamming. I mm-hmm. like to either improvise or I like to, let's play a song. Let's all learn a song and right. play it. Jamming tends to be 12-bar blues and A for way too long. And so I was like, well, okay. So he was really persistent, really wanted to play. And we got together, and uh, we would just we just sort of like, what, what, what songs do you know? We all, he, we all had really different tastes, but we all knew that we liked the Minutemen. Right. So we started learning Minutemen songs. God, at one point, we must have known about 12 of them. And before we even got going... Hey, guess what? Skylar got us a gig. It's like, what? We don't even have a name. <laughs> and we don't have any songs. Oh, we'll just play covers. I was like, oh, man. And I hate getting thrown into gigs when I'm not prepared. Right. And it was with Monkey Juice and Frat. No, who the heck was it? Anyways, a bill at the old Exchanges Gallery. Okay. Art galleries are the worst place in the world to put on punk gigs because the sound is just reverberant and it's awful. So we played our first gig and we didn't have a name. So I wanted to call a shithead. And then I thought, well... Nobody will, nobody will print shithead. How wrong can you be? Mm-hmm. I used to say that the butthole surfers would be on a major label if they had only changed their name. And within three weeks of me saying that, they were signed to Capitol. Right, right. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we figured shovelhead. And I just, I don't even know why. Mm-hmm. Little did I know that the shovelhead is a type of Harley Davidson. And I was at a party and some mini tattooed man in a denim jacket says, what's the name of your band, man? I go, shovelhead. And he goes, bitch and name. And I went, why is that? Well, you know, it's a hog. And I went, you mean a motorbike? Yeah, man, it's a shovelhead, knucklehead, flathead. And I went, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> Damn, there's band after a bike? Yeah. Oh, you know. And then it turned out there was more than one. There was a shovelhead in New Westminster that spelled their name funny as well. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I think Mike Devlin What are the chances that, of that? Yeah, well, Mike yeah. Devlin says that shovelhead's one of the worst names ever. Right. And he, he could be right. I Mike like and it. I never agree on anything. No. So even though he's a wonderful guy and I like him, but... He's my litmus test. If he really hates it, I should probably give it a You're going to stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> right on. All right. Um, sorry, Mike. <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's talk about Andy Kerr, who, of course, was with No Means No. My for... bosom buddy, Andy, yeah. was in The Infamous Scientist at first. Sure. And actually, there was one fine afternoon where Andy, we got pretty friendly. We had a lot in common musical taste-wise. And uh, he says, you know, we were thinking maybe adding a second guitarist to the eye size. Why don't you come over and we'll see what happens. So I went to their place and we played the song Public Image for about 20 minutes. Okay. And at the end of it, I kind of went, you know what? You guys don't need a second guitar player. No, you know, I was thinking that too. Yeah, you know, let's just, let's forget about it. We don't need to do that. (laughs) But we we kept being friends. And then um, he ended up, the eye size ended up disbanding. Well, Murray, the original drummer, quit and John joined. Mm Mm-hmm. Because John was only doing No Means No, and he was doing the famous band Castle, okay, which featured Rob Wright on guitar and vocals. Apparently, they did Sultans of Swing. You can, if you can find Castle. me, a, if you can find me a recording of this, yeah, <laughs> wow, really? Yes. They were like a, a, a bar band. Wow, Rob and Nancy Castle, Rob and John Wright, and I think somebody else, and they would play covers, right? And this is the Castles hits of the day, the, the Castles, the, the, the music, music, yeah. right? Okay, and uh, so. 
yeah, so um, John joined the infamous scientist. The infamous scientist finally called it a day. Uh, about roughly about when the infamous scientists were going to call it a day, No Means No started playing as a two-piece, mm-hmm. live, just bass and drums. Mm-hmm. And so there was this kind of crossover where the infamous scientists recorded their second EP at Key Studios, mm-hmm. partly through my intervention, because Key Studios was very 70s, very studio. And I was like, I got these friends of mine, Casey Peckett, the aforementioned Casey Peckett, mm-hmm. my buddy, was working there as an engineer. And I said, I'd like to bring in some of these punk bands. And they were horrified. Punk bands? Are you going to say, they're not going to do anything. They're just mm-hmm. bands. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, you know, and I said, is there any way we could get a break on the price? Mm-hmm. And so I ground these poor guys down to about half price, which was still pretty expensive. And the infamous scientist did and did the Trouble EP, okay. which was the first decently recorded thing, I think, in town, for the most part. First pro studio recording of any punk rock in town. Mm-hmm. And then not too soon after, not too long after that, um... No Means No went and it did Mama in the same studio. And it was funny, though, because the learning curve for the poor people in the studio, they were like, okay, we're going to DI your bass. And Rob is like, well, that's not, that's not how I do it. Well, that's how we do it here. Mm-hmm. This is where I learned as a studio guy, never say that's how we do it here. Mm-hmm. I would say, how would you like to do it? Right. And so if you listen to the Mama record, you're going to go, why is the bass so clean? Because they DI'd his bass. Mm-hmm. They didn't realize it. His sound is all about how... His amp is blowing up. Yeah, of basically. course. Yeah, yeah. He had those old acoustic heads, acoustic uh, bass heads that just sounded fantastic. And God, he must have gone through three or four of them before he finally switched to Marshalls, which were more sturdy. But mm-hmm. so, but Mama's there, and it's a really neat record. And mm-hmm. when it came out, we were all, you know, fascinated with it because mm-hmm. it was nothing like it had come before. And there were some truly great songs on it. Like I still really love Red Devil, and I still love yeah. My Roommate's a Monster. My Roommate's Turning Into a Monster, and, great uh, song. Yeah, you know, and so. That's when I started thinking, well, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I had a studio as good as this mm-hmm. to do bands in, you know, that I like? And so that's, SOS ended up being in 93, ended up being, that was sort of the, I made my goal that. And it took a while to get there, but once I got there, I didn't waste a lot of time. I, I did a lot of recording. Mm-hmm. Didn't make any money. I did so many recordings for free or for like a hundred bucks. And I put up with a lot of stuff that nobody would put up with. You know, the drummer sitting behind you in the mix, I'm going, turn the kick drum up, please. <laughs> and you go, you know, these speakers don't have a lot of bottom in them. Yeah, I think there's a lot of kick. No, turn it up, turn it up. Keep turning it up, keep turning it up. And you finally go, fuck, I give up. You know, you turn it up and it's like, there's way too much kick in this mix. And you send them home with it at nine in the morning and phones up, there's too much kick in this mix. It's like, I hung up on him. Yeah. I said, what? Click. <laughs> what, what do you think I was telling you all that? So, I, yeah. There was a lot of that. <laughs> so tell me about tell me about uh, hiss and all and how that all came about. Okay, well Andy was Andy from the okay. So can, uh, Andy, we know okay. So when Andy went on to join. The ice no size no. dissolved. Yeah. No means there was a two piece. No mm-hmm. means there decided to go to a three piece. And in fact, on the Mama session, there's an infamous scientist song that they do called "Almost Like Home." Okay. Which is one of those holy grail rarities of the No Means No lore, and that was actually the end of the No Means No first album session. But Andy plays on it. Oh. So that's the first time they played together as a three-piece. Is that right? But they were ostensibly doing an, an infamous scientist song. And then shortly thereafter, he joined the band. And shortly thereafter, Robbie suffered nodes on his vocal cords, and mm-hmm. he couldn't sing. Mm-hmm. For, I think it was about maybe two years he couldn't sing. So Andy did all the singing. Well, Andy and John, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did the You Kill Me thing. Right. And then, of course, they did Sex Mad... Psyche Industries in Montreal picked them up. Alternative Tentacles picked them up. Right. The ball, got, and then they started touring. And in 85, I moved to Toronto for a year. And 
they came out on tour in Toronto. I think it was on their first tour of Canada, and we reconnected and whatnot. Anyway, Andy and I had always been really close friends. So when he decided to pack it in, in, uh, was it 91? Yeah, around there. In, uh, right after Zero Plus Two, he, mm-hmm. um, he had met and fallen in love with their road manager in Europe, uh, Ingrid, mm-hmm. Eagle Eye, as we call her, and they, he decided to stay in Europe. Oh, okay. And not come back from the tour, and he wanted to marry his sweetheart, and the band was kind of like, well, you know, what about the band? And he's like, well, I've kind of had it mm. with all this thing. Because they toured a lot by that point. They made uh, three and a half, four albums, mm-hmm. and uh, he is pretty much spent. So he stayed there. But I was like, oh, well, my buddy's now living halfway around the world. So we kept in touch by ridiculously expensive phone calls, and we'd send tapes back and forth. Because this is the good old days where you'd make people mix tapes. Mm-hmm. And he has a great song called I Made You a Compilation Tape and You Just Gave It Back. <laughs> you know, it's like when you give somebody yeah. a tape, it was like a real, because you had to make it in real yeah, time. It was you so had personal. to spend two hours making it. Yeah, yeah. And so um, we would send mixed tapes back and forth. And one day he sent me something that he was kind of working on. He says, Oh, this isn't finished, but I thought you might want to hear it. So I took this recording and stuck it into two tracks of my eight track and then added some tracks to it. And I sent it back to him. He was like, Hey, that's really neat. And then he sent me back. And then I sent him something that was half finished. Anyway, we did a few of these. We did a great version of When I Get to the Border by Richard Thompson, where I actually do play the accordion on this. Not very well, mm-hmm. but enough to get by. <laughs> and we were just doing this. It, these were like writing letters to each other, like keeping keeping in touch. Except because we would, you know, we were so used to hanging around listening to records together. And mm-hmm. You can't really do that. So you can, that's the next best thing. Anyway, Thomas Antona of Alice Donut heard a tape of this stuff and went, Wow, this is fantastic. Have you played this to Jello? Because mm. Jello from the Alternative Tentacles was putting out Nomi's Nose Records, and somehow Jello got a copy, and he was like, I'll put this out. This is wonderful. <laughs> and so, lo and behold, we got a deal with Alternative Tentacles, and the next thing I knew, we had records and CDs out, and I got a check for like 2,000 pounds. And, wow. And Jello was a great guy. He's as honest as the day is long. Yeah. A, 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 a complete fanatic for all things. It's Jello and I at a thrift store is something to see. I'm sure. Because yeah. we'll, we're like a plague of locusts. <laughs> and uh, so we did this first record, and it was, we made some money on it. And uh, like, not a lot, but mm-hmm. you know, enough to buy me a car, I think it was. Nice. So um, we continued, and we had other stuff left over. We did two of them. Mm-hmm. We did Fourth and Back, and we did uh, The Making of Him. And then I then it kind of was like, well, then I kind of ran out of gas with that project because it was like, I sort of felt, well, we've kind of done it. I do, I, we did a, I started a whole bunch of stuff for another record and didn't really like any of it. So mm. that was my signal that, you know, maybe I should just not put this one away for a while. And you never say never, we may well do it again. Right. But um, I just felt that I was, I had to turn the page. Did you guys ever perform any of that stuff live? Only once yeah. last, this year? Last year. Right. Andy came over for a vacation, did a solo set at Logan's, and I got up and we played a song called Rel by Prox. Okay. Which, uh, where I got up and played guitar with him because there's a guitar solo in it. And he went up with the guitar solo. But it's the only time we ever played live. One That's song. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It was last year. So, yeah. But, uh... And you keep in touch with him still? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We, we keep... Well, of course, and... the internet is wonderful, that. Facebook. So True. many people hate Facebook. I've met guys on Facebook... I met a guy who was my best friend in 1974. I haven't seen him since. Yeah. And he found me on Facebook, and we were comparing notes. We're both pushing 60 now. Yeah, yeah. And he, he got into a career in audio engineering and TV in Halifax. Oh, wow. So his career paralleled mine. Yeah, yeah. Even though we had nothing. No, had no idea. We didn't do any music in those days. Yeah. When I was a kid. 
So it's really neat to catch up with people. Oh, yeah. Facebook is, is great for that kind of stuff. It All has about, its uses. It really does. Absolutely. That reconnecting stuff. And so Andy's still over in Amsterdam. And it's still in Amsterdam. He plays in a band called Two Pin Din. Yeah. Which is a great inside joke if you know anything about European electro- electronics. Because Two Pin Din is a speaker plug in, in Europe. Okay. And with a guy named Wolf Plum, who used to play in the Dogface Hermans. Right. And was also the stunt Elvis, where he would strap himself to a roulette wheel and you'd spin the wheel and whatever song it ended on... Each each thing had a Zell Elvis song. He yeah. would sing that song even if he was upside down on the wheel. Are you being serious? Yes, he, he did. The, Amsterdam is an interesting town. It is an interesting town. So wow. him, him and Wolf, and they're doing two pin din, and they're still doing it off and on. Wolf lives in Belgium, and he lives in Amsterdam. I live in Victoria. Yeah, you know the second uh, Hissel record has a vocal by a fellow named Robert. Uh, let me get this right now. Robert Nichols. Okay, who's in an amazing band from England called Shrug who has no internet profile whatsoever, and they've been around for like 30 years. And he put a vocal on this. I'd never met him before. Yeah. And only when Show Business Giants played in Leeds in, 90, in 2000, we played a gig with Shrug, and I actually got to meet the guy that was on my record. Which oh, wow. Was kind of neat. Yeah, that is cool. Right on. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of odd. Okay. Um... And that there, and that's the Hisnal story, basically. Yeah. After that, it's it's in it's dormant. It's dormant for now, yes. but not necessarily dead forever. You never say never. Never say never. Uh, let's talk about what you're kind of up to these days. So, uh, High Arctic. High Arctic was a band that existed with uh, three guys, one of whom is Michael Cop, who books Logans. He's mm-hmm. the, the Logans guy. Mm-hmm. And I always thought they were a pretty good band. They were just a three-piece. And one fine day, they had a gig on a Saturday and on the Friday, I guess it was, Michael was all, you know, oh, well, our drummer can't make the gig. I said, geez, too bad. And I said, Oh, you were really looking forward to that show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, I said, I've done sound for you guys enough times. I'll bet I could play the drums. Mm-hmm. He's like, really? So I went to Logan's at noon the next day. They must have loved this. <laughs> and went through the set with them a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. And made my drumming debut with them that night. Wow. And then the next night, or the next practice, uh, we had a second drummer waiting for us, which was Joel Fernandez. And I had a lot of fun playing d- double drums in High Arctic because neither of us were drummers first. Right. And so drummers who are actually drummers often don't like playing with other drummers. Mm. It's kind of like the sandbox isn't big enough for them. Sure, yeah, But if you're not a drummer, it's different. And so we actually got pretty creative with this. But then in High Arctic, it got to be, I was the guy who would fill, if somebody quit, was like, okay, well, now we need a, you know. We we acquired another drummer. So we don't need three drummers. So I'll play, I'll tell you what, I'll play keyboards. So I struggled to be heard on keyboards in a band that was way too loud for its own good. (laughs) And then when... Andy Vanier quit the band to form Babysitter, okay. who went on to fame and fortune, I think, in Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, I just went and moved over to bass. And uh, so we had a four-piece. The, the lineup is constantly morphing. Currently, we are the only band I've ever known that has two drummers, two bass players, and a guitar. Oh, really? So that's pretty weird. Yeah. It's, logistically, it's a nightmare, as yeah. you might guess. <laughs> and uh, so we're Don Chess is playing bass with me. Michael's playing guitar. And Dave Houghton and Garrett... Oh, I've forgotten his name, but it's Scottish. McClure? I asked him this question yesterday. I don't know. I didn't know his last name. Garrett is in Scars and Scarves with Donnie. Okay. Uh, Dave Houghton is in Crashing into Things with Michael. With Michael. It's yeah. all very incestuous. Yeah, yeah, of course. Scene. But that's the sort of main band that I'm in now. Um, and I'm playing a Fender Six String Bass. Okay. And that's kind of the art noise grunge rock band yeah a lot of different scenes like us the metal people like us mm-hmm. the hipster people like us which is good and then i've just recently formed a band with mark from the Dayglows. Mm-hmm. no everybody knows him as blind mark yes. i don't call him that 
because, I, like I say, it's like calling a one-legged guy hop along. <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, I mean, but Mark is such, he's such a, he's an inspiration, really. I, I know Absolutely. It sounds, it sounds mawkish, mm-hmm. but Mark, you know, Mark still skateboards, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he's not doing it to show everybody how cool he is. He likes to skateboard. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he's a wonderful drummer. Yeah. And I met him when uh, Drunk Tank recorded in my studio many years ago. And I had known his brother, who had sadly passed away. Mm. I, his brother had passed away before I met Mark. So I kind of had a connection that I knew his brother. His brother lived across the street from me on Shelburne and had these raging parties that attracted every cop in Victoria. <laughs> and uh, he has moved to Souk. He bought a condo in the, in the Mariner's Village. Okay. The failed... Right, right. Oh, yes. Which is actually still really nice, but, Mm -hmm. you know, nobody cuts the lawn. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, there's another friend of ours, Matt Norrish, who runs Otter Point Farm, and he is now officially a farmer, and he's growing hops and turkeys and chickens. He played in a band called Severance that I recorded in 1991, and I can honestly say I do not remember anything about this. Okay. And when I met him for the first time in 30 years, I didn't recognize him. I don't remember him. It was a little embarrassing, <laughs> and but he's a good guy, and he didn't mind, and he yeah. says, well, you know, I haven't played in 20 years. I said, well, let's form a stupid punk band. So we decided, what should be the theme of the band? Well, how's about how ridiculous Donald Trump is? Right. Because there's an endless amount of inspiration. It's almost it's too much. So the first yeah. song I wrote for that band was a song called Fake News. Mm-hmm. The second song I wrote for this band was called I OD'd on PEPs, PEPs being penis enlargement pills. Now, there was a story recently about Trump's ex-wife claiming that Trump was addicted to penis enlargement bills. Oh, I never he heard He had this overdosed one. twice, <laughs> and he was obsessed with using his penis pump. Now, this hit the internet for a hot minute, and of course, I thought, there's a song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, it turned out to be fake news. Yeah, yeah, right. So <laughs> the conceptual purity of my band is unsullied. And we, we do, there's, well, Christy Clark makes an appearance. Yeah. I do a song called I Pay You to Lie to Me. And, uh, <laughs> and then there's a song about the Vancouver Canucks, which just because... Right. Now, you haven't even said the name of this band yet. The name of the band is the Skid Marxists. The Skid Marxists. Which is all one word. I love it. And it's spelled correctly. Yes. Because if it wasn't, then we'd have to be a metal band. Right. No metal. But there was a metal band in the the bar. I do a lot of metal at the bar. Mm -hmm. What were they called again? Aggression. Right. And not only could you read their banner, it was spelled correctly. So I said to the homeowner, these guys are all over 40, right? (laughs) (laughs) How did they didn't you know have that, that font that that yeah they didn't have the, 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 the tree the, bre- yeah. the tree root font <laughs> no uh, and they were very good actually my friend Brian Hills was engineering them okay. was no means knows old studio engineer right. for all those classes so I know a lot of people in the business yeah most okay. of them like me I think either that or they're amazing liars uh, yeah no I think, <laughs> I think most people like you yeah, I try to be the guy I you know I always try to put myself in the other person's place if I was hiring this guy to record me what would I want right. You know, if I was playing, if I was on the stage doing this gig, would I be unreasonable in saying, hey, mm-hmm. you know, whatever? Well, I'll tell you, uh, one of my good buddies, Scott Dunlop, was uh, did his punk jam thing with you a week yes. or so ago. Uh, you and Murray and yep. Jason Shures. Uh, that was lots of fun. And he, like, was just over the moon that he got to play <laughs> with you guys. He it was, was embarrassing. He was yeah. just gushing. Yeah. And, uh, of course, Murray and I, we hadn't shared a stage in, boy... 25 years. Really, hey? Well, I've never actually, well, other than He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, mm-hmm. which was one gig, I've never been in a band with Murray, but I've done lots of, we've had lots of contact. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're old, old friends, and we have a lot of similar tastes in music that would, would surprise you, like Mahavishnu Orchestra and stuff like that. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so it was really neat to get up with Murray and play with uh, Scotty, who I've actually played with before. 
We once had a three drummer version of Sister Ray at Logan's once, where Scotty and I and God knows who else was playing. <laughs> it was largely cacophony, but uh, <laughs> yeah, Jason Shears is the moving force of the Paul River punk scene. And yeah, yeah. He's a very nice, normal man, he editor is. of the local newspaper. Get him on a stage. He is a maniac. Yeah, I know. I get he's that impression. He's completely out of control, yeah. lunatic. I spent most of the punk jam set just trying to stay out of his way because <laughs> they were careening around the stage like maniacs and. It's it's so much fun, you know. Th- that's the thing I like about the whole punk rock scene is, you know, you can be forty five and still act like a An crazy idiot. kid. Yeah, yeah, you know. And uh, the, the punk rock scene is great. In normal pop music, mm-hmm. the rock star is this exalted figure. You go, boy, I might be able to get close enough to touch him. Mm-hmm. The punk rock was like, can we sleep on your couch? Yeah. And my black black flag slept on my couch. Yeah. And the meat puppets. That to me was what punk rock was all about. It reduced. The idolization. Totally. Everybody's poop smells the same. Yeah. Right? And so and I that think that's an appeal was, for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, yeah. it really appealed to me because mm-hmm. it, it, well, like Angelo Biafra says it best, it ain't no religious cult. It means thinking for yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> I've always, you know, always really subscribed to that, which is why people look at me and they go, they look at me now, I got the gray beard, I got the long hair. You, you recorded the Dayglows? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why? Oh, you don't look like the kind of guy. What am I supposed to look like? Oh, wait, you want me to have a mohawk? <laughs> right. You know, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like people don't understand. Mohawks nowadays are kind of kind of like dressing up like Elvis. Yeah. It's, it's just it's it's bygone. Totally. It's it like it's like going anybody. to a, it's like going to a theme party dresses as a yeah. greaser or yeah, something. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, I figure, you know, I'm as punk as anybody, I think. Not totally. that it really matters. No, it doesn't matter. It's all about <laughs> it it's all about matter. No. It shouldn't matter how punk you everybody thinks you are. Well, uh, let me um, let me wrap it up here yeah. with, with this with this question because you are uh, you have been the sound guy at Logan's for eighteen years. You're continued. You're there. Are you? You're there pretty much. How many days a week? I'm you there whenever there? they want live yeah. music, and especially if it's difficult, music, right? Punk or metal or stuff. You know, a lot of times people bring their own sound man. A lot of times there's DJ nights. Sure. Um, so I'm you know I work two days a week. Mm-hmm. Three days, never more than three. Okay. Well, my question and, for you is this: because uh, you've been part of the scene for so long here how do you feel things are right now in, in the in the music scene the punk music scene in particular in victoria are things uh well are you uh, optimistic about the the, the future the of music? music scene is kind of like a microcosm of the world music scene right now creative music in the music industry right now is under such attack from the music industry that it's it's appalling mm-hmm. like i actually go out of my way to watch the grammys every year and i just can't believe the stuff that people Somebody gave me a 50 Cent CD the other day. Like, I've never heard 50 Cent. Yeah. Now, I really like rap. I think 50 Cent is really boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, he's this mega star. Yes. And so the local scene, you saw, I'm wearing my Fountain shirt. Now, Fountain is a local band that I love mm-hmm. because I'm old enough to say, well, you know what? I hear a little bit of Wire. I hear a bit of Gang of Four. Mm-hmm. I hear a little bit of Captain Beefheart. You know, and, you know, a lot of the times there was one band that sounded, I said, you guys sound exactly like Prefab Sprout. Do you remember Prefab Sprout? Nobody really. remembers no. Prefab Sprout. They were like, they'd never heard of Prefab Sprout. So I said, you go, go listen to this song by Prefab Sprout. The guy goes, it's exactly, it's so cool. And I went, <laughs> you know, like, there's so much. In, in, back in the, in the 60s, everybody was making it up as they went. Yeah. Now there's so many templates that you can use to fit yourself into. Sure. Okay, we're going to sound a little bit like Sonic Youth meets Metallica meets the B-52, you know. And so it's... It, I was reading, I watched a show last night from about an Electra E and R guy. When he saw White Zombie, he said they were they were, they just had this thing. They were terrible, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to sign them, and I'm like, 
Okay, well, this is what's wrong with music. They were terrible, but I wanted to sign them. Yeah, yeah. What about the good? Didn't you see any good bands? And there's, you know, how many million good bands are out there that couldn't get arrested? I know. And <clears throat> so the local scene is great because the, the local, the kids, bands like Fountain, they've rejected the music industry utterly mm-hmm. to the point where if you want to listen to Fountain on your studio or on your stereo system of choice at home, mm-hmm. you must have a cassette player because they're only putting cassettes out. Right. Which to me is lunacy, but I understand the concept. Yeah. Like even CD, no, the, the major labels don't make cassettes, although God knows they'll start if they, if they if it becomes the a thing. Yeah, yeah. And to me, that is the rejection of the mainstream music industry. So... It, and you call it the punk scene. I call it the music scene. The non-corporate music scene. Right. People who are, yeah. And it's that nice is to see still that. very strong. Mm-hmm. It's still very vibrant. Some of it is hopelessly imitative. An awful lot of it has nothing to say. Mm-hmm. I've lost track of how many people say, can you turn the reverb on my vocals up really high? And I go, well, you won't be able to hear what you're singing. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And so, but it's, there's still, as long as there's, what's the word I'm thinking? As long as there's pricks to kick against. Yeah. We're going to be okay. And Victoria is so isolated yeah. that we are not influenced by the big city, you know. And it's funny how it's that's still the case, even in this internet age, yep. you know, where everybody's communicating, you know, it doesn't yep. matter where you live. The internet there has, still is yeah. this isolation of being on this island, isn't there? Well, it's funny. Yeah. If you look at some of the scenes in the past, like like Minneapolis, mm-hmm. Prince, Husker Du, Soul Asylum, Minneapolis? Athens, Georgia, mm-hmm. REM, B-52s, Love Tractor. Mm-hmm. You know, the, these places are far enough away from the media centers that they don't get corrupted right. by... The, like, when I, when I lived in Toronto, this was really weird. I worked in a record store in Toronto, and the reps from the record companies would come in and do my job for me, in, in order, hope, hoping that I'd help sell their product. They'd give me tickets. I got all this swag. Yeah, yeah. And it was like... <clears throat> and, and I was in a band in Toronto, and they were like, we sounded kind of like Steely Dan. Mm. Everybody hated us. Yeah. Why don't you sound like U2? Well, because there's already a U2. Yeah. But we're really looking for bands that sound like U2. And, you know, it was, and Toronto is the worst because Toronto it, it figures it's the center of its little universe. Yes. And I couldn't get arrested in Toronto. Yeah. I couldn't get arrested in Toronto. It was amazing. I was too, I went to a jam with my Fender Jaguar and they went, what's that? Mm-hmm. And I go, it's an electric guitar. Why? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a surf guitar. This is before Jaguars were hip. Mm-hmm. And they go, I go, it's, a, it's an electric guitar. What's the mm-hmm. problem? You can't play that. They wouldn't jam with me because I was playing an incorrect guitar. Wow. You know, so. Yeah. <laughs> How do you win, right? Yeah. So I came home. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're, we're glad you're home. Yeah. Well, Scott, man, oh, yeah. man. I mean, I think this we could talk forever. We could talk forever. We That's really, truly could um, because you've got a million stories, and I, and, I, and I think we hopefully touched on a few here. I'm trying to write a book. You sh- Oh, really? I'm trying. To- I think you should. Well, I haven't quite. I was either going to write three books, which were going to be all titled Show Business Giant, which is the ironic thing because nobody's ever heard of me. Yeah. And one was going to be The Road, one was going to be The Club, one was going to be The Studio. Because I've done all three extensively. Yeah. Not too many people have done all three. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I might just turn it into one book. It depends on how much work it is. I'm really lazy. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, get, I don't get the impression you are lazy. But I got paid to write for Monday Magazine many years ago. I was zip gun yeah. for Monday Magazine. We, rec- we reviewed the Black Flag show and that right? gave it a positive review. And yeah. We outraged everybody. It was, I, I also have to give a shout out to Ty Stranglehold, by the way, who wrote a great yes, article about you for yes. Monday Ma- Magazine a few years ago. And Ty is the keeper of the, one of the keepers of the flame in this town. Right? Yes, absolutely he is. There's, yeah. a, there's a whole group of them, Ty and, and Hoon and... Mm-hmm. 
like, oh, I'm not going to remember any of them now. There's a there's a couple of dozen of them. Yeah, Jake yeah. Warren is a real mover shaker. Sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, the, every scene needs those guys. Yeah, absolutely. the selfless individuals, the guys that like Mahoon put on a gig the other night. It's a long weekend. Nobody showed up. Mm-hmm. It probably cost him a couple of hundred bucks, but he's not going to whine about it. It's just like, that's what happens. Yeah. You know, I put on Eugene Chadbourne in this town five times. I think it's cost me 400 bucks every time I've done it. Yeah. And then I get him in my studio and I record two albums with him. Right. For free. Because, so it's worth- because that's what I'm here for. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know? Right. So. Cool. Um, well, uh, anyway, thanks for having me. Thank you so much it's for coming in, Scott. Coming. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm glad it finally happened. And uh, thank you. You brought me a couple of CDs too, which I really appreciate. Thank yes. you. All right, man. Uh, until next anymore. time. And so if anybody wants to, uh, to, to, to get more stories from you, you can just head on down to Logan's on yep. Live Music Night. Don't talk You're, to me when the band is playing. Don't talk to me when the band is playing, <laughs> but feel free to buy him a beer because he would appreciate that. Oh, and he'll probably. Too, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, the rule about Salmon at Logan's is don't talk to the Salmon. Don't do this anywhere. Yeah. If the band is playing at 120 decibels, don't scream into his ear because he can't hear you anyway. No, that's true. And he doesn't his want to talk to you at that point. <laughs> yeah, wait till after the show. And if he ignores you, that's because he doesn't want to talk to you. <laughs> He's not being mean. No, exactly. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Scott. That's it. This has been the Punk Show Podcast. If you'd like to hear more, including kick-ass punk music, go to thezone.fm slash punk. Oh, yeah. And be sure to check out the Punk Show on Facebook and Instagram.